Uh, today, we're, um, we're, we're taking the story of Saul's conversion and kind of spreading it over three weeks. This is the second week. Next week, we'll have a little bit more um, of that, uh, kind of looking at the, um, the result of what happened there. Uh, but today, we're looking more closely at uh, the, the calling of Saul. We looked at his conversion real specifically last week, uh, how he got saved, how he came to know Jesus. Today, we're looking at this early part of his calling, uh, what this is going to look like for him going forward. Uh, after his conversion, now he's going into this whole new part of his life. And um, we're going to look at not just how Saul himself responded to the Lord, uh, but also how other people responded to Saul uh, in his conversion. Um, Saul is quickly realizing here that his new life in Christ is going to require some, some trade-offs. He's going to have to make some trades. And for all of us as believers... Uh, this becomes very apparent to us. Uh, the moment you become a Christian, you start walking that out over the next few weeks and months and couple years, you start realizing that life is going to be full of trade-offs, sacrificing one thing in order to get something else, losing one thing in order to gain something even better, but it's, it's still a loss, but you gain something of greater value. Being, being emptied out in some aspects of life, feeling like you're just, you're, you're empty, you've got nothing, but so that you can be filled in a totally different way. Uh, being weakened, being brought so low where you just feel like you can't go on sometimes, you just don't know where to go. You have this being weakened so that you can be strengthened. There's just all kinds of trade-offs. Sometimes God's gonna put you in a position where he's going to have to provide for you when the path that you're on just seems completely impossible. And that happens throughout the course of our life. We, we face circumstances that just feel completely impossible. And so Saul is beginning his ministry, and right off the bat, he faces trials. But all of these trials are, are meant for his strength, and they're going to shape him for the rest of his life. They're going to shape him for the rest of his ministry, the ministry that God has called him to. And God can and will do the same thing for you. He can and will and has done the same thing for me and will continue to do the same thing for me, uh, walking you through various trade-offs that you're going to have to go through, losing some things so that you can gain better things. But he's going to do all this to, to build your strength, to build your faith, to shape you in your life and shape you for the ministry that he's called you to. And each one of us, all of us, have been called to a ministry. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Um, all of us generally are called to this ministry of reconciliation, uh, though all of us, we have different unique ways of walking that out, but every single one of us has been called to ministry. Every single one of us. And God is going to strengthen you in your ministry. And he's gonna teach you a lot of this through the various trade-offs that we're gonna have to face. We're gonna see a little bit of that today uh, with Saul. So let me pray and thank the Lord for bringing us here. Thank him for his word. Thank him for uh, bringing this story of Saul's early days uh, into his word so we can kind of see and get a, a foretaste, a little bit of, of what we can expect for ourselves. Father in heaven, we gather here to start our weeks off by your design, by your, um, your great idea to set us in a direction together as a family, brothers and sisters, coming from different backgrounds and different situations and circumstances. But you brought us all here together to set us on this, 
same direction. And though we break from here and we go out into our world and the different contexts that we all live, but yet we, we move towards the same goal of seeing you glorified in our own hearts, but then through our lives. We want to see your glory change us and transform us so that as we change, we can go out and we can affect change in the world by bringing that same powerful gospel into the lives of others. And so we know, God, that your word shows us, and we're going to see this today, that as we do that, there's going to be trade-offs. There's going to be good times and bad times, ups and downs, sacrifices, but also gains that we are going to walk in. So help us to even prepare our minds, prepare our hearts, so that when we come to those crossroads, your word would remind us that this is what we can expect, that it would encourage us to continue to move forward in what you have for us. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gathering of the saints. Be glorified among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to back up a little bit into 15 as we uh, sort of cover a little bit of last week's text uh, so we get context as we move into the rest uh, going uh, through verse 30. So if remember, the Lord said to this guy Ananias, he's saying, hey, this guy Saul, I just saved him. I want you to go and find him. Ananias is like, I don't want to go find this guy. I know who he is. But God says, no, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So here's the, the new text we're in today. Now, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his, uh, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? They're saying, isn't this the guy who caused a big old ruckus in Jerusalem and he came here to arrest Christians and bring them back to, like, what's going on here? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, when many days had passed, the Jews now plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him out in a basket so he could escape. So the Lord says specifically to Ananias that he's going to use Saul to take the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's a little surprising because Saul was the most learned and discipled Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. It kind of makes more sense really for God to use him to reach the people that he most relates to. That's usually what we think. You know, we, we want to relate to people that, uh, that, that we understand. And of course, Saul would also minister to Jews, but the Lord's primary work and ministry for Saul is going to be to 
Gentiles, people that he was brought up hating. And this is going to cause some problems as we move along in Acts in the coming months. But we see that Saul's going to also go before kings, which sounds pretty awesome. I mean, how many, how many times do you think to yourself, man, I would love to be able to share the gospel with this prominent person or this, if only this you know, famous person, this actor or our presidents would get saved. And we just kind of think, man, that'd be so cool. You look at guys like, like Billy Graham and whoever that had the, the, the ear of kings and presidents. This sounds very awesome, but with that, for Saul, is going to come a terrible price to be able to stand before kings. Eventually, one of these kings, so to speak, Nero, the Roman emperor, he's going to have him executed. So though this is an incredible ministry that Saul is being given, it's an incredible work to do, but there's going to be a a trade-off for Saul. There's going to be sacrifice. There must be sacrifice for us to walk out the ministry that the Lord has called us to. God's word tells us, to whom much is given, much is required. If we want to do our, our, our life and work out our ministry for the sake of God's glory, we have to know that there's going to be trade-offs. And here the Lord tells Ananias that he's going to show Saul how much that he has to suffer. And that suffering is going to happen almost immediately. Look at verse 23 again. When many days passed, the Jews, his own people, now plot to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates, lurking in the shadows, trying to ambush him in order to kill him. So the tables have really turned now for Saul. Remember last week I said that Saul, who was the hunter, became the hunted as he realized that he was being hunted down by the Lord Jesus himself, the one that he was hunting down. But now he's also being hunted by the Jews, his own people. So it's not just the Lord that was hunting him down. But now his own people, his own brethren, the Jews, they're now hunting him. Now keep in mind, sometimes when Luke speaks of Jews, at times he means the Jews would become Christians. Uh, So sometimes Luke will kind of um, sort of um, uh, use both terms a little interchangeably. Sometimes he says the Jews there, but he's talking about Christians who become believers. Other times he means the Jews who have remained as Jews and have rejected Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. So Saul was going to Damascus because there was a huge Jewish population and he wanted to capture any Jews who'd become Christians. But by no means were all the people in Damascus, all the Jews now Christians. There's probably just a small pocket of them. So most of the Jews that we're talking about here would have been on Saul's side as he came to Damascus. They're waiting for Saul of Tarsus to come and help us to squash all these heretic Jews that are becoming believers in Jesus. So these Jews would have been on Saul's side, helping him. But now these former allies for him, who are ready to welcome him into Damascus, to help him hunt down and capture these new Christian converts, now they were seeking to kill him. And look at verse 26. So he's lowered out of the basket secretly, and now he goes south back to Jerusalem. He's trying to escape. So verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, now he attempts to join the disciples. He's like, I gotta find some safety. I gotta find some people who will welcome me. So he goes to the disciples, but they're all afraid of him. They're all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. So he goes down to Jerusalem looking for safety. He goes to the Christians, but they don't want him either. So the Jews have rejected him. Now the 
disciples, they're saying, we don't want you. And Saul, you know, he expects this. Later on in chapter 22, he recounts a bit of his testimony a little bit. Look what verse, uh, chapter 22 says. Saul says, I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. So Saul, he's talking freely and openly later on. He, he knows what he has done. He knows his past. He knows his sin. And though he regrets his sin, he's not ashamed also. He, this is used for God's glory now. He doesn't hide his past. He says, all those disciples know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Saul, I mean, he knows that everyone knows his reputation. Everyone knows his past. So he goes to Jerusalem looking for the disciples. Obviously, he was expecting that they would be uh, afraid, skeptical. I mean, you can just imagine, right? He, he goes and he, he knocks on the door, knocks on the door. And they're like, who, who is it? It's like, it's Saul. Saul who? It's like, Saul. <laughs> Like, so, so who? <laughs> and then they're, they're like, turn off the TV. Siri, shut off the lights. Everyone be quiet. It's Saul of Tarsus. I mean, they're, they're freaking out thinking, why is he here? He's going to destroy us. No, no, no. I'm, I'm a good guy now. I'm on your side. They're like, no, I don't think so. I mean, what were they going to do? Have him pinky swear? I mean, they can't really do anything to verify that this guy's legitimately now a disciple. They're probably freaking out. They're afraid. And then here's what happens, verse 27, Barnabas. If you guys remember, we saw Barnabas a little bit earlier. We're going to see him later as well. Barnabas, Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas is a guy who's positive. Uh, he's, he's optimistic. He's not a pessimist. Uh, he really believes the best of others. He's an encourager. Barnabas here took him. He took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly. So he's coming and kind of being an advocate for Saul. Like, no, this is real, guys. It's real. So he went in and out. Saul now was able to go in and out among the disciples at Jerusalem. He was welcomed in because of Barnabas. And so now Saul was able to hang out and go in and out of Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So, so Barnabas here, the son of encouragement, good old Barney here, right? Barney's here, he's positive and optimistic. You know, church history says that Barney comes along Saul and he starts to sing, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. And he joined them together. That's actually not part of church history, but... But I, I think that what's going to happen here for us, though, I think is every time we hear the word Barnabas, you're probably going to picture a purple dinosaur now because Barnabas was positive and Barney's positive, and, and this is kind of the, the person Barnabas was. He was just an encourager of people. And he comes alongside Saul and says, and he says to the church, this guy loves Jesus now. You guys should accept him. You should welcome him. And Barnabas is kind of this unifier for these, these two groups Barnabas, he risks a little bit. He believes Saul. He believes him. And that, that's risky. It's risky to believe someone that sinned against you, isn't it? When someone does a terrible sin against you, it's hard to actually 
believe them when they've repented. But see, the thing that Barnabas does here is he doesn't just believe Saul, he believes in God's ability to change Saul. He doesn't put his faith in Saul, he puts his faith in God's ability to change Saul. That's where Barnabas gets his encouragement from. So he becomes an advocate for Saul. And Saul was then welcomed into this brotherhood and he began to go in and out as he pleased, being in fellowship and working alongside these new brothers. Those who were at first his enemies that he wanted to destroy have now become his protectors and his advocates and he's been received into a family. And he continues to preach boldly. So he gets this great gift, being welcomed into a family. But as great as that is that Saul now has this new family, this family of one-time enemies that have now become friends, his suffering does begin here, the very beginning of his ministry. Because his friends have now become his enemies. These Jews, these brothers, have now become his enemies. We saw that the Jews back in Damascus wanted to kill him, but now he's in Jerusalem among the Jews that he's more familiar with. Look at verse 29. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Greek-speaking Jews. These would be most likely the same group of men who Saul was with that sought to kill Stephen. All right, so you remember Stephen was killed in Jerusalem. If you remember, it was the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, that uh, wanted to put uh, Stephen to death. Saul was over, he was looking over these Hellenist uh, garments as they stoned him. All right, then Saul goes north to Damascus, but now he's back in Jerusalem, and now he's disputing with those Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. So this is the same group that Saul was a cohort with as they executed Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 8, we saw that that was the Greek-speaking Jews, and some of those Greek-speaking Jews were from a region called Cilicia, Cilicia was Saul's home region. The town of Tarsus is in Cilicia. So these were likely men that Saul had relationship with, that he worked with, that he knew well. These people looked up to Saul. And now he's talking with them, disputing with them, and they want to kill him. His friends, his friends, his co-laborers want to kill him. And for us as Believers, as we go through this life, there's always going to be many, many, many trades that we have to make, things that we have to count as, as, as rubbish or garbage, as worthless, if we want to know Christ, if we want to be close to Jesus. We have to be willing to lose things, sometimes cutting off aspects of our lives, whether it's sinful worldly desires or if it's maybe some of our our aspirations or dreams or, or ways that we just waste time, sometimes even certain relationships, the things that come between us and God, us and, and our purity, our, our love for Christ, the things that come between us and our worship, the things that draw our attention away, the things that distract us, that become more important to us than, than our walk with Christ. And Saul is learning this now on the fly. He's being rejected by those who once accepted him and even looked up to him. 
He's losing everything that he has known in his life. Luke, in his, his gospel, in chapter 18, if you want to open with me, it's a few verses here. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Luke records here a story between Jesus and a man that a lot of us we know as the, the rich young ruler. And this, this young man, this young ruler, he asked Jesus in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. How do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. He says, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this rich young ruler, he says, All these things, I've kept them all from my youth. I've never broken the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's pretty arrogant statement there, but nonetheless, that's what he says. So when Jesus heard this, he said to him, but there's still something that you lack. I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And if you do that, then you'll have treasure in heaven. So, so there's the trade-off right there, right? If you do this, you sell all, give everything to the poor, then you'll get this treasure in heaven, and then Jesus says, and come, follow me. But when this young man heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who heard Jesus say that said, well, then who can be saved? If rich people can't make it to heaven, that was their mentality, right? If you're rich, that means God blesses you. That's what they thought. That's not true. That's not how it works. God blesses both the rich and the poor. But their mentality was, if you're rich, that's a clear sign of God's blessing and approval of your life. And if rich people can't get to heaven, then who can possibly get to heaven? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, look, we, we've, we've left our homes and we follow you. So he's like, hey, pat, pat us on the back here, Jesus. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left their house or their wife or their brothers or their parents or their children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive, here's the trade-off, many times more in this time, in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. So the point of this story is that for us, if we want to inherit eternal life, if we want Jesus, that's what we want, but we also want to keep all of our stuff. We, we want both. We want our cake, we want to eat it too. We want Jesus, but we, we want to hold on to everything else that is comfortable, that, is, that we enjoy. We want to have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. We don't want to go all in on Jesus, go all in on the kingdom. One foot in faith, one foot in the world. But Jesus promises that you will never regret making the trade. God will give you many times more, not just in the next life, but even in this life now. If you entrust yourself to him, go all in on faith and on Christ he says, no one will regret that. He promises you will never regret making that trade. This young man had one foot in faith and obedience, 
but he had one foot in his bank account, in his comfort. And you can replace that, that phrase of Jesus's, uh, sell all that you have, because this isn't just about money, right? Jesus spoke specifically to this, this young man because he was rich, and, that's, and his riches are what held his heart. But it might not be money that holds your heart. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. It could be something else that holds your heart. So replace that phrase, sell all you have, with whatever it is that controls your heart. So you can say to yourself uh, that Jesus says to you, uh, one thing you like, hey, you're doing pretty good. You're a pretty good Christian. You're a good moral person. You're not going around causing a, a ruckus, but there's still something you lack. I want you to cut off your desire for acceptance of others. I want you to, to cut off your desire to be a, a people pleaser and, and come follow me. I want you to cut off your, your, your worship of, of comfort. I want you to step out in faith. Allow yourself to be a little uncomfortable in some situations for my sake and, and come follow me. Uh, one thing you lack, I want you to stop chasing after worldly things, worldly pursuits, and I want you to come follow me. One, one thing you lack, I want you to cut off just wasting your time doing things that don't benefit you. I want you to give that up and come follow me. One thing you lack, I, I want you to, to be willing to even maybe offend relationships, not purposely, but sharing me with people. Being willing to do that, even if those relationships are important to you, you get something out of those relationships. I want you to come follow me. Our problem often, like the rich young ruler, is that we actually think we have too much to lose. Right? That's what that guy thought. He's like, I can't do that. I have too much to lose. I'm very rich. Right? It's, it's hard to follow after Jesus. It's hard to go all in on faith when we feel like we might lose too much. We think we're going to lose more than what we're going to gain. We're convinced of that. We don't want to be the outcast at school or shamed or mocked at work, maybe overlooked for a promotion or, or some, you know, being in with the boss because he'd rather hang out with these guys because they have his sense of humor or whatever it might be. We don't, we don't want to be thought of as old-fashioned or, you know, goody two-shoes on the wrong side of history. We don't want, we don't, it's, it's, it costs too much for other people to think that, that we're closed-minded, we're bigots, whatever it is that they accuse us of. I don't want to speak up about something. There, there might be some kind of retribution or shaming. And so the trade is not worth it to us. We want to hold on. We want, yeah, we want Jesus for sure. We want eternal life, yes. But we want to hold on to our reputation, our place in society. We want to hold on to all those things. Luke also records Jesus sharing a, a parable. Luke chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, a man once gave a great banquet, throws a big party and invited many people. And at the time of this banquet, this guy sent out his servant to say to those who'd been invited, go tell them, come, everything's ready. The party's ready. We're gonna have a huge feast. Let all my guests know about this. But all these people invited, all they alike, they began to make excuses. So they're invited to this great party, but they start making excuses. The first one said, oh, you know what? Yeah, I bought a field and I have to go out and see it. So can you excuse me from the party? 
Then the other guy said, oh, you know what? I just bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. So I can't make it to your party. And another person said, oh, I just got married, you know, and we're really busy, you know, the wife, you know, the old ball and chain, you know, the whole thing. And, and he's like, therefore, I can't come either. So he's making excuses. So the servant comes back and reports these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, you know what? Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor. Bring in the crippled. Bring in the blind. Bring in the lame. So the servant does it, and he comes back, and he says, Sir, what you've commanded, I, I did it, but there's still room. We still have plenty of room at this party. So the master said to the servant, Okay, then go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled I tell you, he says, none of the men who are invited are going to taste my banquet. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to the crowds that came to the banquet, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying, if you don't want the blessing that I offer, you don't want the, the, the feast, the banquet, the future that I offer, you have better things to do than follow after me, I'll give it to someone else who will actually appreciate it. I'm offering you eternal life and life to the fullest. Joy, eternal, purpose, meaning, satisfaction in life. But you're too busy chasing after other things. And notice, a lot of the, those things aren't bad things. I just got married, bought some oxen, got a field. We got, we got stuff to do, don't we, church? We got stuff to do. We got responsibilities. Right? We've got all kinds of things. But these sayings here of Jesus, these sayings are not easy Right? If you don't make that trade and come follow me, you can't be my disciple. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to, there's got to be a trade-off here. Matter of fact, Jesus actually says, we saw in that first text I read, that it's impossible for us to do this. It's impossible. I mean, do we realize that? This is impossible to leave all for the sake of Christ. Living your life for Christ in your own strength is impossible. Completely impossible. You know, in our, in our flesh, in our natural state, it's almost like our flesh, our flesh is allergic to God, right? I mean, like, we just, we just push back. You read these scriptures, and I mean, I, I mean, how many of you guys, me included, when you hear that, you just go, oh, but, but wait, wait, what? what? Like, you, you, you just kind of, something rises up, and you're like, I mean, that, I mean is it, did he really mean that? I mean, we just push back. We have this allergic reaction when we hear hard sayings of Jesus, we don't like what he says a lot of the times. It's too hard. And you see in John 6, there's a lot of people who said, these sayings are too hard. And so they left. And he looks at the disciples and he says, you guys want to go too? Is this too hard for you? That's when Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words for eternal life. So we have a choice, church. We can look at these hard sayings and say, yes, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm, I need to go all in. I need to make trades 
Or we can look at it and go, "Eh, yeah, I got some other things to do. I'm kind of busy. That's our choice. But look what Jesus says in that that first text. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We can do this with the power of God working in us. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul here, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation that I am, I will be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger. Abundance, but also need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, or persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But here's the trade-off. But in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And one of the ways that he makes us able to do all things and to do the impossible to be more than conquerors is through the many trade-offs that he actually gives us. As we give, we let go of things. He gives us what we need. So it's true that Saul here in this story, his, his friends have become enemies. He's had to let go of everything that he was ever raised to love and pour his life into his Jewish brothers and sisters, his own religion and faith growing up. These these friends have become enemies. But God gives him exactly what he needs to go forward. He now causes his enemies, these Christians, to become his friends. God takes away, but God also gives. And we see here in verse 30 that his new family came to his aid. So he goes up against the Hellenists, They're now seeking to kill him, his friends, people he was probably neighbors with back in Tarsus. But look at verse 30. When the brothers, the brothers, the disciples, the ones that Barnabas connected Saul with these new brothers, when these brothers learned of this plot, they brought him, they brought Saul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So again, we see the second group of Christians now, first in Damascus, Lord him through a basket. Now these, these brothers in Jerusalem are taking him off and sending him away to safety. Now I look at this, this section, Saul's life, the Lord taking away, taking away everything that was comfortable, that was known to Saul, but the Lord giving. God takes away the security of Saul's previous life, but he provides a greater security through a new life. And when you and I, we go through our various hardships, the the trials we face, sometimes what the Lord asks us to do is is truly impossible. Many of you have been in what has just felt like impossible situations, impossible circumstance, just stuck between a rock and a hard place, but just it doesn't seem like any clear answer. I was talking with someone kind of recently, I'm saying, I was Telling them, you know, what the Lord is asking you to walk through right now is impossible for you. It is impossible. 
It's impossible for you to actually do what the Lord is bringing you into. But with the Lord, with the Lord's work and his leading, as he teaches us to look to him and not look to ourselves, not look to our circumstances, God does the impossible in and through our lives. And that's exactly where he wants us to be. He wants us to be in a place where it's impossible for us and ourselves to move forward. Because where else are you going to look now? You've exhausted. You're at your wit's end. You don't have any wisdom left. You have no clear answer. All you can do is look to God. That's where he wants you to be. Because that's where you find that you go to him more deeply. So the Lord, he knows how to perfectly take from you. Have you ever thought through that? Usually when we lose things we love, we just think it's, it's I mean, it's catastrophic. It's disastrous. It's painful, it's messy, it's confusing, it's frustrating. I mean, it's just chaos in our mind and heart, but do you realize that the Lord surgically, with surgical precision, removed, took that thing from you, whatever that was? It feels like a mess, it feels like chaos, it feels like darkness, but God is a surgeon, he's a physician, and he takes these things perfectly out of your life, but then he perfectly gives you what you need to keep walking, to, to grow, to be strengthened, exactly what you need. There's an analogy that I use uh, at pretty much every, every wedding I've ever officiated. Uh, I talk about a, a wedding ring, and I usually hold it up, and I just show, you know, it's a gold wedding band. But you know, gold, it, it doesn't come out of the ground looking like a nice shiny wedding ring. It comes out dirty, filthy, uh, misshapen. And this, this gold nugget, it goes to a goldsmith. A good goldsmith knows what to do. Knows what to do. So he takes that, that gold and he starts heating it up. Heating it, heating it, heating it. He starts pounding at it, shaping it. As he does this, the, the dross and the impurities start falling off of it. But a good goldsmith doesn't hit too hard and doesn't hit too long because he doesn't want to break it. So he lets it cool down and then he kind of looks. He examines his work. He lets it cool down, gets to see, kind of looks, see what he has to do next. Then he heats it up again, pounds it, shapes it. More dross is falling off of it. More impurities falling off of it. But he lets it cool down. Doesn't break it, lets it cool down. And the goldsmith keeps doing this over and over and over and over again. And you know, a goldsmith knows when his job is done. You know how he knows? Once he lets it cool down and he looks at this ring, when he can see his reflection in the gold, he knows his job is done. This is exactly what the Lord does for us. Takes us through trials. We, we get heated up. It feels like we're gonna break. There's all these things that are coming in just pounding, pounding away. But our God is good. He surgically knows precisely what to do to draw things out of our hearts, take us through the fire, take all the impurities out. He, this is, he uses this heat and this pressure in order to draw these things out of us. And he keeps going until he more and more sees his own reflection in us. When he, we cool down and we, we kind of get through this fire and we actually look more like Jesus than we did before. Before we went through our trial, before we went through this, this taking away, God has done a work and he sees his own son in us. 
we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And isn't that what we want? At least that's what we say we want. We say that's what we want. We want to be like him. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, Paul says, not just when you're with me, he's saying to the church, but much more when I'm not with you, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so Paul says we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling that God works in us. Going through trials, that's what actually changes us. This give and take, this, this trade-off, this is how we're shaped. This is how we work out our salvation. Th think about uh, physically working out. Right? You, you, don't, you don't create muscle, right? The muscle's already been put in your body by God. Only God can put muscle in you. But when you work out, when you lift weights, you're, you're working out the muscles that God has already put in you. You're strengthening and building what God has already started. Does that make sense so far? Okay. God puts the muscle in. We work it out. Now, if you lift a bar with no weights, you're probably not going to get strengthened. You're probably not going to build those muscles, right? You put weight on, you put resistance, pressure that is pushing against you. Gravity is forcing you to the floor, but you're pressing against it. Now what happens after so many reps and so much consistency? Now you're being built up, you're being strengthened. And the same thing here is for our salvation. You don't, you don't create your salvation. Only God can cause you to become born again. So when we talk about working at our salvation, it's not talking about creating salvation, nothing like that. Only God puts his Holy Spirit in you. God puts salvation in you. He alone gives that. But we have to work it out. We have to strengthen our faith. Paul says to Timothy, to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We do the reps. We, we, we uh, enable ourselves under resistance. When we have resistance spiritually, we're pushing against resistance. And resistance is what causes us to grow spiritually. When life is just kind of easy and everything's kind of going our way, guess what? You don't grow spiritually. You don't. You're just lifting a bar over and over again. That's it. It's through trials. It's through the trade-offs, the give and take, the hardships. That's the resistance that's coming against you. And now you have a choice. Am I going to work out my faith? Or am I just going to give up and give in? So this is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul says it's God who works in you. So Paul says that God is even like your personal trainer inside of you, the Holy Spirit inside of you, saying just push against that resistance. Build your faith, build your strength. Strengthening, whether it's physical or spiritual, comes through resistance. That is how we grow, church. That is how we grow. That is how our faith is strengthened. It's through resistance. But the trade-off of resistance is strength. The sacrifice of facing resistance and facing trials leads to strength. And church, that's worth it. It is worth going through trials 
throwing yourself upon Jesus saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I have no wisdom. I have nothing. I need you. It is worth doing that rather than just chasing after your own wisdom or just giving up, but going straight into the face of that opposition, that resistance. It is worth that trade-off because you will be strengthened. You'll be changed and transformed. David Livingstone, who is a missionary to Africa, he took the gospel into the deeper parts of Africa. He went through a lot of personal loss. Uh, his wife ended up dying on one of their missionary journeys. I mean, he lost everything. And he was asked at the end of his life about the sacrifice that he made. And one of the things that he said among many, he said, the only real sacrifice is to live outside the will of God. If you choose to live for yourself and in the world, that, that's the sacrifice you don't want to make. You're giving up this living in the will of God and chasing after God. You're giving that up in order to have this. You're sacrificing the wrong thing. We ought to be sacrificing the, the temporary things, the things that, that are worldly, that are just kind of our own self-centered desires. We should sacrifice those to have this. But instead, Livingston says, the worst sacrifice, the only sacrifice is to live outside of the will of God. Now you're really giving up things that you shouldn't give up. That's the trade you don't want to make. Luke, again, in chapter 9, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So we ask ourselves, what are the trades that we've already made in our lives? What maybe trades are we thinking maybe we need to walk into? What, what are the trades that the Lord is maybe calling us to? We don't want to make excuses. We look at Saul's instant willingness to sacrifice, to make this trade in order to live his life for Christ, giving up this previous family and the esteem of Jews. But he gives that up because he knows what he's getting is something even greater. I want to close this with three obvious ways that we can make some trade-offs rather than excuses. And you won't be surprised what my three areas that I'm going to bring up is. It's the word of God, prayer, and community. I want us to think about how we can make trade-offs for these things. Specifically, and I, and I bring this up for a couple reasons. For Saul um, and for the early church, these, these things, these, this, the word of God, being in prayer with each other, being with each other, those were the means by which Saul and the early church were empowered. It's what drove them and sustained them through their trials. And secondly, for the whole course of church history, these have been the primary means that God has used to transform and change and grow his church. But in our culture, we like shortcuts. We want instant. We're consumers. We want things that, that look impressive and attractive. And that is true even in Christianity. I, I call that churchianity. Right? There's Christianity, which is real, just living your life for Christ, and there's churchianity. It's kind of this sort of Christian subculture. We just want things to like look showy and nice, and we, we need to make a trade. We need to pursue not what culture trains us in, but God's means. I'll share a quick little story before we, I look at these. Um, and I'm going to share this in a couple months too, uh, but I, I wanted to mention it twice. Um, 
Some of you guys know Willow Creek, very huge, huge church uh, outside of Chicago. Uh, they, um, for 30 years, just built programs, a program-driven model of church and discipleship, pumped millions and millions and millions of dollars into this for 30 years. And after 30 years, you know what they said? They said, it doesn't work. It doesn't make disciples. They're good programs, it's a good show, it's a good gathering, it's exciting, but it doesn't actually make disciples. A church can be a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Here's what Willow Creek eventually realized. This is a quote straight from them. They said, spiritual growth doesn't happen best by becoming dependent on elaborate church programs, but through the age-old spiritual practice of, get this, prayer, Bible reading, and relationships. Amen. It took them 30 years and millions of dollars. I could have saved them a lot of money <laughs> and a lot of time. But that is what they figured out after 30 years. They, and, and praise the Lord, they humbled themselves and said, you know what, it didn't work. Don't, don't follow our last 30 years of, of programming. Dive into prayer, the word of God, and God's people. From day one, our church has and will continually make that our priority because we believe that that's exactly how God has designed it to be. So three quick things and I'll close. You can um, read along with me here too um, in your notes. I want you to think for yourself your time in the word. Some of you guys do the uh, reading plan together. Uh, I'd encourage you to do the memory verse that we have every week or memorize scripture some way. Make that a priority in your life to memorize scripture Make it a priority to figure out how to have a regular time in the Word, whether it's in the morning, evening, whatever, but make time to be in God's Word. Make that trade-off. It might mean you have to get up a little bit earlier. It might mean you scroll less on social media. Make the time. It's a worthy trade-off. It's a worthy trade-off. Second thing is time in prayer. Find ways just to pray more frequently. It doesn't have to be long prayers, just praying throughout your day, praying for everything, praying for the most mundane things in your life, giving God thanks for little tiny things you notice throughout the day. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. Learn how to, to pray in that, that model that Christ gave us, but make that trade. Make that trade. Maybe it's your shutting off talk radio on the way to work and you pray instead. Make the trade, it's worth it. And the third thing is time with people. Whether it's getting involved in a community group, having coffee with, with a friend more frequently, and I'm talking believers and non-believers here, being more intentional, having families over for dinner, I know we got in some bad ruts the last couple years of being less social. We gotta break out of that stuff. It's worth the trade. Get in that rhythm. Get in that, that build that value. Have intentional time with people, believers, non-believers, whoever it is, pray with them. Make it a habit when you talk to someone on the phone for a little while, say, hey, can I just pray for us real quick? Right, you go have dinner with someone. Pray before you guys leave. Make that a priority. Encourage them in the word. Make that trade. Yes, you gotta give up a, a, a Friday night or a Tuesday night to spend some time with people or an early Wednesday morning to have breakfast with someone. Make the trade. It is worth it. It is worth it. God will take away some of these things that you're, you're comfortable with, but he's gonna give you something much better. Promise, promise, promise. You have more time in the word, prayer, and with people, He is going to provide for you something greater than whatever it is you just gave up, just like he did for Saul. So this, this last Trade, and I'll pray. This is what fuels us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the greatest trade of all time. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We trade our sin for his righteousness. That's what makes all these trades so worthwhile. We will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed with our trades. Ever, ever, ever. Jesus promised that. That's not, that's not the Joby guarantee. That's the Jesus guarantee. He said it already twice in, in Luke. No one will regret this. So make these trades and trust that God will give to you when he takes away from you. Always remember that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the father of lights who gives good gifts to your children. It is true and often difficult for us, Lord, when you take away. Times when we are confused, when we are struggling with seeing what you're doing, but we know that you provide in all of our circumstances. And as Paul said, whether we have much or we have little, we know that we can be content in all the circumstances because we can do all things through your son Jesus because he is the one who gives us strength. And like Saul, we might lose everything that brings us comfort, all the things that we value, that we've built our life for, but you will give us even greater. You will replace those things with far greater blessing. It might not be how we expect it or what we want in the moment, but, but we can trust you. In your perfect timing and with your perfect hand and your perfect scalpel, you will remove, but you'll also replace. You'll give. You give good gifts to your children. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in anything and everything. Not many of us in this room will probably at one day be hunted down like Saul was. And yet, you provided for him. And so we know that you will provide for us too. Everything we need for life and godliness, you will give to us. We thank you, God, for these great promises. We love you. We worship you. It's in your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.